crickets in a thorn tree. Uh, I'm not really the host. I don't think there is a host for this episode. No, we're a hostless We're, uh, a, we're a hostless podcast. podcast. We're just uh, two eternal guests. We feel like you're the host. Uh, but I'm, of course, Nicholas Lorimer. And, and, I'm, and I'm joined with the esteemed Longboy Liberty himself, also known as Gabriel, Gabriel Krauser. Krauser. How's it, how's it? Yes, so uh, we had a long discussion about what exactly we were going to talk about today, um, where there was a lot of arguing. And eventually you convinced me that we needed to talk about the world's greatest topic in the filling the pages of all the opinion pages, mm. um, which is, of course, climate change. Yes. I mean, you know, Chinese hooks did away when it's upset. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think, I mean, part of this is that um, if you've listened to the show before, you might remember that uh, Nicholas and I both went to a school called St. Stithians. Uh, Boys College. It's a private school in Johannesburg. And I was a boarder there when in 2007 the boarding house burnt down. One of the you know, sharpest teenage memories that I have was being one of the first people to see the boarding house on fire. It was an electrical fire. Yeah, it quickly yeah, engulfed the yeah. whole thing. And, uh, the, you know, there's this line that Jacques Chirac was using in the 90s and that I heard in Germany in 2006 and that Greta Thunberg made popular. Uh, more recently, that if you're in front of a burning, burning house, it's not the time to debate and think and find the right way forward and analyze. It's a time to panic. And I have firsthand experience of being in front of a burning house, my friends potentially being inside and their stuff and being inside. Panicking. And I was panicking and panicking didn't help. It was the people who were cool, calm and collected and who looked for the right mm. tools who did help. And so I felt like continuing that conversation so now that we've established, I think, hopefully for our listeners, <laughs> that panic is not the right way to go forward, to, to just talk a little bit about what the right way to go forward is, not in terms of uh, what we should do about it yet. I don't think I'm ready to talk about that so much as to talk about what the state of play is. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to, to clarify for all listeners that I'm probably in this section going to be uh, disagreeable and grumpy because... Um, I am, when it comes to climate change, I find myself able to agree with effectively no one and I argue with everyone about everything and be very obstinate and difficult about it. Right. And I'm, I'm probably a little bit similar to that. <laughs> um, I've got the added problem of, of being quite obnoxious in, a, in the following way. <laughs> Only in the following way. I, uh, I went to Princeton University uh, in the United States. It's a fancy Ivy League school. Um, at the time that I went there, I didn't know much more about it than that the French Prince of Belair's sort of upper crust adopted family had all been to Princeton, and I thought that was pretty swish. Um, the Fresh Prince of Belair? Yeah, Will Smith. Hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, fun okay, fact. Okay, hey, Holmes, smell you later. Anyway, <laughs> that was, I wasn't, I didn't, anyway, so, so Princeton's a fancy school. One of the interesting things about it is that, um, it and its associated Institute of Advanced Studies, which is more focused on maths and theoretical physics, and uh, you know has had such great names as I Albert Einstein, who worked there and at Princeton. Um, the, between those two institutions, which are sister institutions on the same campus, effectively, uh, four major world-leading scientists have, for the last decade plus, been skeptics about anthropogenic climate change. Their theory is rather. And they're theoretical physicists among them and a mathematician that uh, a better explanation for the kinds of uh, global warming increases that we've seen in our lifetimes is the big flaming ball of gas in the sky. Yes. Otherwise known as the sun. <laughs> I would like to also, before we continue with this discussion, uh, just 
tell our listeners that the only reason that I agreed to do this was because Gabriel suckered me in by saying how we could make some sort of allusion to medieval Europe, which is like, you know, heroin to me. <laughs> yes. So we, we, and unfortunately, we haven't figured out what that's going to be, although maybe fortunately. <laughs> we are, we're sort of doing this live. Maybe, maybe the, yeah, maybe the, the listeners will be saved from that torment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope not. Okay. So, so I just want to, so when I was at Princeton, I, one of the classes that I studied was called, um, it had a name that I can't remember right now. It is a science class on uh, the climate. And it was taught by some pretty prestigious professors, not not really groundbreaking in their field, but really respectable Princeton top academics. Mm. And they had a collegial reason to give a sympathetic reading to their fellow professors who were climate anthropogenic climate change skeptics. The burning ball of gas crowd. Yeah. They disagreed with them, um, but they gave a sympathetic reading. And I, I want to sort of just rehearse that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the thought is that um, if the is that the sun's the the combustion the sort of uh, nuclear fusion mechanism yeah, the, by the, which the sun the generates sun goes energy through cycles yeah and that some of these cycles have produced more heat than others so so and uh, funnily enough uh, the sun has weather right yes. and climate patterns basically mm. um, you you I in fact I've got a, I'm related. Uh, through a cousin of mine to a theoretical physicist at Witz. And last year he published a paper where they basically took the kind, the kinds of Gaussian equations that people use to measure magnetic flux um, and applied it to felt fire analysis from satellite data coming from out of space over the Namib, uh, over, over the sort of semi-desert in Namibia and Botswana and South Africa. And they found that, uh, you know, they could make really useful insights in pattern tracing Mm. uh, by looking at felt fires in the same way that you look at magnetic flux. Yes. So, you know, when you're doing uh, hard science, it really does come down to numbers. And uh, numbers can tell a story about weather on Earth and they can tell a story about... You know, and that weather is a, a kind of chemical reaction is what's going on with the weather, yeah. as well as a kinetic reaction. And kinetic energy is really just chemical energy because what you have is, mm. uh, you know, if, if something is floating, for example, it's the interaction between the H2O mm. uh, chemicals and the uh, whatever chemicals, the Oxygen, carbon, carbon chemicals in the yeah. wooden pencil that are keeping it afloat. Anyway, so you've got chemical reactions. In the sun, it's much more driven by uh, uh, strong nuclear bond reactions. Mm. Um also some chemical stuff because that's where chemicals get produced. But the point is that it's, it, mathematically it's perfectly accurate to say that the sun both has weather in that it has isolated interesting events that are quite unpredictable in particular. But you know you can generally predict that something like this is going to happen at some stage somewhere in this region over this period of time. And that kind of description is a climate description. So the sun has both weather and the climate. And this yes. is one of the first things I was taught back at this Princeton class all the way back in the day. In, as part of the sympathetic reading, and there was, and and the and the point is that the sun's weather affects the wo- Earth's weather, yes. and so if the sun throws off a solar flare, that's a weather event on and the sun, and that'll affect weather events, climate events on the Earth, and electronics. Yeah. So, but here's one of the problems: is that the I don't want to. I'm, uh, I'm not going to get too technical, and partly it's because my brain has been addled by. Um, traveling up and down the countryside and speaking to farmers whose houses are on fire and have been burnt out of their houses and homes and, you know, the the torches of extropriation without compensation has somewhat (coughs) roughened up my my, uh, 
acumen. My brain has just been addled by being a Friday. <laughs> also that. <laughs> so, so I hope not to be too technical about these matters. But the basic idea, sorry, the basic idea, as I say, is that weather events on the sun can affect climate on Earth and do. Um, but the problem with that is? So the, da- the theories, the data uh, and the theory as it originally stood did not line up. So, you know, you have this theory about why it's solar flare activity that's uh, releasing kinds of ions that pick up, that radiate energy in a certain kind of way that uh, is easy for some people to miss if they aren't really au fait with quantum mechanics, um, which is part of the reason that uh, theoretical physicists have been part of the core of this movement to say, well, we think some climate scientists aren't really getting the full picture because they don't have a, they don't have a root cause analysis of energy. Mm. And so this is all really about energy flux. And because they don't really understand this energy, they don't see how the energy differentials really work in terms of the input side from the sun. But then, because they're proper scientists, they said, you know, here's what our theory is of how solar rays work. And here are some things that you could predict if it is going that way. And one of the things that you might, that one of the natural predictions that fell out of it is that the, the three layers of, sort of, so to speak, atmosphere around the Earth, the, the troposphere, the stratosphere, and then the domestic atmosphere, yeah. uh, they, their composition is radically different in terms of density, in terms of chemical composition, and as a result in terms of how they react with, uh, um, with energy inputs that are, that are quite, uh, in, in terms of what constitute them, you've got ions and you've you've got energy reactions that are again more based on the nuclear strong forces than uh, or weak nuclear forces rather than but you do with chemical l- stuff. let's not be too technical okay not to be too technical <laughs> i said we wouldn't right okay so but the point is you've got these three layers and yeah. you'd expect all three layers to get hotter yes because the sun's energy is coming from outside it passes through all three to get to earth yeah but according to the greenhouse uh, theory, um, the, at the sort of bottom layers, it's getting reflected back down onto the Earth. So, so the blanket layer yeah. just around us is getting much hotter, whereas the other two layers aren't really getting hotter. Yeah. And that seems to contradict what the solar guys were on about. Then the solar guys um, came back and said, well, we need to relook at our root cause analysis of energy transfer. And some of the implications of that meant literally looking back all the way to the Big Bang and, and, and expectations of what would be happening in quite, a, quite early development stages of the universe. And so they said, okay, well, let's look. We can see the early stages of the universe by looking deep into the background radiation that, yeah. that you find if you go far enough in any direction because of the strange nature of the universe where everyone's at the center of it. Yes, and everyone's looking backwards in time. Yeah, if you look far. So they did a bit of that and... There were some interesting kind of frissons of like, well, maybe that actually shows that we're right, but then uh, also some reasons to doubt. Here's a very important scientific point. A lot of critics said, hey, guys, you're not real scientists, you solar people, because you started out with a theory, and that theory predicts certain data. The data came in. It doesn't line up with the theory, and then you just changed your theory. You're just trying to fit your theory to whatever, you know... The evidence says. The evidence says in order to push your own line. So that you can always be right. <laughs> so, so as my professors pointed out, although they disagreed <clears throat> with their conclusion, they said you must understand the procedure of science. That is a very reasonable procedure in science. That's how science works. 
So you come with a theory. You come with a you theory. Check it you test the it out. Oh, okay, it doesn't work. You amend the you theory. You adjust the theory. Yeah, that's just how it works. So we must. I I want to echo to anyone who's listening here that I think I was privileged to get a good, calm, cool education on this topic, and I, you know I think that it's important for us to pay respect to serious scientists. And there's also serious scientists at MIT. Um, Linzen, uh, who's been sort of making some waves talking about solar flare stuff. Uh, MIT's, uh, you know, the, one of the greatest science universities in the world, and he's one of the leading professors there too. We should not throw these people, we should not throw ash in their eyes. They might be onto something. What I was given to understand was that on a balance of probabilities, which is really what we have to wrestle with in our empirical state of ignorance. We don't know everything. On a balance of probabilities, it looks like they're probably not right. There's a chance that they are right. And we do better to encourage them to keep working at it. Because the more they work at it, the more clear it is going to become whether they're right or not. Exactly. If we shame them and we shun them and we pull funding away from them and we pull attention away from them, then it makes it harder for them to, the jo to do the job. And then the veil of ignorance shrouds us only more. And this is exactly what I hate about the climate change debate because it's become so charged, there's no more room for science. People, you know, the, you kind of have to take your position and if you give any credence to the other side then it's considered a grave threat to human existence. Yeah. It becomes a loyalty issue rather than a facts issue. Exactly. That's and what panic does. That's literally the point of panic is to forget about the facts and just be a team. And, I, you know, you can go on, online and there are stories of people who did challenge sort of the orthodox interpretation by, you know, suggesting theories like you said at some universities and they faced social consequences for that, yeah. um, which is incredibly poisonous for the for the academic community and for the scientific community. Yeah. Uh, regardless of whether they're right or wrong, that's yeah. not particularly important. What's important, though, was that they were applying rigorous science. Yeah. that they Exactly, that you, you're sticking to the method. And the method is to come up with theories, to test them out, to analyze them, and then to revise your theories. Everyone, you're not doing science unless you're prepared to revise your theory based and on something. So, I and I just want to come back to Princeton because, I, because it is obnoxious, right? Um, to it sounds braggadocious to mention it, but it's a special place. Mm. That is a special place in the world. There's there's not another Princeton. And one of the things that happened when I was studying there, 2012, I, I think it was, is that these some of these scientists that I'm talking about wrote a thing in the Princeton Alumni Weekly, poor, and they wrote some things in the local press, and, they, and some of it made to the New York Times because, of course, that's the nature of things, sort of making the argument that climate change activists have been cooking the books a little bit, exaggerating the data, and that mm. there's another way of explaining things that's not about anthropogenic climate change. And then there was a return letter, and the return letter sort of likened them to the Nazis. Yes. And it came from an academic. Well, this is where that... Also at Princeton. And, and most of the professors, the professors that taught me, although they were very sure that these guys are wrong, these solar flare guys are wrong, they stood up and they said, no, that's not on. That's not how we debate this mm. stuff. And, the, and they managed to cool, I believe, the atmosphere on that campus to the temperature that's appropriate for thought because they resisted the temptation of getting clickbait yes. likes by being a crusader and a social justice warrior. And, so and, and you can see the sort it of can be done. particularly pernicious evil uh, uh, bent to this by the fact that the sort of uh, the people who challenge climate change orthodoxy are generally 
called deniers. Yeah. And there's always this sort of allusion to sort of Holocaust denial. Yeah. I mean, that is, that was the, that was the point made. And then people explicitly make that claim. Sometimes they're saying that you're committing as great an evil as those who deny. Yeah. Because so many people are going to die. And yeah. yeah. In fact, it's even worse because people are going to die, not just acknowledging that people have died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is not conducive to anything come, approaching a solution or reasonableness. Yeah. So that's w- so. I think we've we've hit one point there, and that's that you can that if you respectfully disagree, you can learn, and, and you can help the people that you're disagreeing with exactly. also to learn and to come up with the best arguments. And we need that. The second point that I want to make for um, for people who aren't scientists and don't have all the time in the world and don't really want to go Google stratosphere and troposphere and ionic exchange and whatever to figure out what's what is that is that they. Ha- we all, I mean, and that's my position too, really, mm. is that we have to wonder about deference to experts. To what, to what extent should we defer to experts and what, to what extent This is a very question difficult them? question and it was actually came up a lot in Brexit yeah. um, because there were a lot of the, as, as they called it, uh, I think Michael Gove it was, yeah. who said the British people are tired of experts. Yeah. And um, the, the, the sort of Brexiteers talked about what they called Project Fear, which is the sort of, uh, supposed experts kind of clumping around their class interests and giving warped analysis by using and using their uh, false credentials basically to exaggerate. Well, they're real credentials. They're using credentials, their credentials, but, but, but not you know to to ch- to pump ideas into the but I, uh, I think public square that aren't actually as good as they sound. There was also a little bit of sniping at you know. There's a lot of a lot of people out there who build a career on the fact that they have a PhD in one thing. Yeah, but anyone who kind of has engaged with academia but knows that a lot of Academia is very, very specific and focused. Yeah, and you know you can write a um, PhD on seal populations and the effects of you know uh, fishing on them. Yeah, um, but that doesn't really tell you about polar bears. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, and not even polar bears. <laughs> let alone does it tell you about carbon exchange? Yeah, exactly. Uh, ocean current developments, undersea waterfalls, uh, atmospheric, you know, El Nino, El, El, El Nino. So obviously we, we don't want to go with the, you know, kind of, I, I just have a gut feeling people yeah. who, who sort of speak to people's emotions. Yeah. But at the same time, we don't want to slavishly just have deference to authority of the, the, the most credentialed in society because they too have their flaws. Um, there can be flaws with the scientific basis and understanding. Sometimes mm-hmm. the heretics are right, as Galileo was, was one to point out. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, one of the reasons that he was... I put under house arrest by the Catholic Church. A lot of it was political. But some of it was because at the time, um, him and Copernicus's theories were not confirmed by the majority of science at the time. Yeah. They said, well... They were really odd theories in a way. And yeah, yeah they weren't that good. They said, we've got all of these equations that come from the Greek masters and we've been studying them for years and we've got all these complicated books and stuff and they basically say this and you... They gel, they reinforce each other, they're confirmed by the evidence. We've done experiments even, you know. I mean, they weren't as rigorous as a modern theory. Not nearly, not nearly, not nearly. But... But but they were... In the sort of... In the scholastic tradition that they were part of, they were respectable. Exactly. They were the most respectable things around, really. The anti-Copernican... Uh, theories were yes. more respectable in Copernicus's time, um, and and uh, Galileo is, is the first to strike a very proper blow against that because he actually does proper observations, yeah, um, and says no wait how can it be this, and then it sort of begins to crumble quite quickly after that, but you know the the importance of heresy is 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 not to be understated, yeah, so I want to encourage people to think of themselves as belonging to the scientific project. 
in this kind of way. You, you and I need to look at evidence. And, and the first evidence that we need to look at is the evidence of experts. So appeals to authority are important. If all of the authorities agree, if all of the authorities really agree, then that's a very important bit of evidence to start with. The next bit of evidence to look at is what the system is that's producing authority. Mm. If it's a rigged if it, system, if, it may have if it's in got the wrong incentives, if you've got exposed leaked emails and so on. Well, like um, race science, which was all the rage from sort of 1880 to uh, about sort of 1940, actually. Yeah. Um, and the incentives were wrong enough that that itself exactly. gives you evidence. The thing about evidence is that it's unlike... Um, I mean, and this is a, this is an enlightenment point that's kind of raised by Spinoza. Hume Hume really uh, takes it the furthest. But the the kind of idea that you have in your mind when you think two plus two is four is quite different to the kind of idea that comes to mind when you have evidence of an empirical nature. Descartes also big into this. Mm. Um, so evidence is always pro tanto. It's always as far as it goes. Oh, that's a five dollar word. Yeah. Latin word, it means as far as it goes. So you've got evidence is always defeasible. It means it proves something up to a point it can be counterproven. It, it doesn't really, uh, it's not like two plus two equals four, which is true in virtue of the meaning of the words. That's an a priori truth. Uh, that's just a truth about how ideas relate to each other. Truths about the world are things that you can only know in part. And so, uh, Evidence, evidence is pro tanto. So there's pro tanto evidence about what the experts think. There's pro tanto evidence about how effective the system of expertise has been constructed. And then there's the third kind of evidence, which is the evidence that the experts themselves produce and the arguments that they have yeah. around it. So let's look at the first thing first. W the evidence of the authorities. I mean, so I'm not saying what they think. Mm. Uh, the, the arguments that they produce, the data that they produce, just what do the experts think? There's, one, there's a temptation to say the experts all agree. As I pointed out, that's not entirely true. There are very serious experts. There are also very few people, uh, very few subjects in which all the experts agree. You know, you have to go sort of to, to gravity and then only on a very baseline do they, do they all agree. Right, right. Um, and, you know, when, when Einstein uh, came up with his... Uh, theory of general and special relativity, mm. which turned gravity on its head, Newtonian... We're Newtonian, very upset. And that was, and that all experts really agreed that Newton was right. Yeah, up to a point. Yes, yes. And then, uh, the, the, for, for a while, there was some like, oh, this is a problem. And then all, all they, experts yeah, came to agree it. that Newton is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> useful, usefully wrong. That's yes. another interesting thing: is being wrong turns out to be useful. You still learn Newtonian physics at high school he was because in, it's still useful yeah. for so many things. The useful, wrong ideas. The usefulness of his wrongness was. Phenomenal, <laughs> and this is, by the way, a point made by Kwame Anthony Appiah in his book *As If*, which is, I think, the best uh, sort of contemporary philosophy of science analysis. And he says, you know, it's fine to say wrong things, to speak as if something is true, even when it's not true. For example, Newton's theory of gravity, because it just turns out that yes. that's how the world yes. works. And uh, you know, I think if we're going to have a drinking, so game, you shouldn't diss people when they're wrong, just for being wrong. Yes, yeah, especially if they're wrong respectfully. Um, if we're going to have a drinking game of this podcast. I think every time the word Appia is mentioned, <laughs> you need to take a shot. Okay. <laughs> well, I just took a shot of Coca-Cola <laughs> because it's not late enough in the day for anything else. But for next podcast, we'll do a bit of that. Okay. <laughs> so do all, do all experts agree? No. Uh, but do most experts agree? I'd say the answer is yes. 
I mean, it's 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 indisputable that the answer is yes. Most climate scientists agree that anthropogenic, uh, the emissions of greenhouse gases by human beings, is responsible for uh, for tipping global temperatures up. That that is just the case. That's what most experts think. There's a problem though when you get to the second point of how are the incentives lined up. That is highlighted by a recent letter that was. Uh, sent around universities around the world and has been signed on by 11,000 scientists. Uh, and the letter basically says that, you know, humans are responsible for climate change and uh, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, this species is going to go extinct if we don't become vegetarians and stop flying around and do all kinds of things like that immediately. Yes. So a friend of mine... Well, before, before, you, yeah. before you talk about the, the, the sort of problem with that, there is another problem in that you've got now people who in theory, according to the sort of letterhead of this thing, yeah. are scientists, and they're saying climate change is happening, which if they are all scientists, although we'll see whether that's true. Um, it's fair enough. That's a, that's a thing. But then they're making policy, public policy prescriptions. Yeah, I mean, they say we're doing this for policymakers. They, yes. say, we, they say we are introducing a set of, quote, vital signs, end quotes, for use by, quote, policymakers, end quotes. Uh, this is, you know, if you're a climate scientist, you're not the kind of person who understands the impact of changing dietary, the diet of everyone, I think, on the planet. For example, I don't think it's unfair for scientists to make some kind of policy recommendations, but they are also pro tanto because, yes. as you say, their expertise might be in terms of analysis or diagnosis, yes. as the doctor would say, but not prognosis because, you know, the person exactly. who makes the medicine is going to know different things to the person who checks whether your heart they, is ticking in the right rate. They could be right, but they there's not necessarily a reason to believe that they're super right yeah. about Yeah, their authority, yes. the authority of a diagnosis person doesn't go towards knowing how to make a medicine. Yes. Different kinds of authority. But there's a little bit of a problem with this uh, collection of yeah. So, esteemed colleagues. Yeah, so a sweet friend of mine uh, Googled all of the people. In South Africa. Uh, all of the South African people on this list of 11,000. And he could not find a single climate scientist among them. Big oof, as the kids say. So he found um, Laura Bester, who has a, a, a Master's of Science in Zoology from the University of Pretoria. Miss Arangta Bletcher, also from Pretoria, hasn't got her Master's yet, but hopes to do so by, quote, developing a novel technique for monitoring reproductive paddles, patterns in the scales of the ground pangolin, uh, whose Latin name <laughs> is Smutsia. Teminci. No, dude, don't laugh. Using <laughs> no, their scales as a good. hormone matrix. That's, that's, that's very good science and it's important biology that needs to be done, but I'm not really sure <laughs> if no. it's particularly useful in this case. Right. So, but, so these are, you know, I think these are serious people. And then there's Hetty Esterhazer, who is listed as a, quote, retired teacher, end quote. So I think, you know, dude, teachers are great, man. And people are trying to figure out, and there's someone also on the list, uh, I'm not seeing it just now, but someone who's an expert in sea cucumbers. Would, would, would it be more accurate to, to, for them to have labeled this instead of 11,000 scientists, 11,000 moderately well-read people? Well, 11,000 <laughs> super smart people who care about the climate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Urge, urge policymakers to do X. Yeah. They should have labeled it like that. And if they had, then... It would have been read differently. It would have played differently in the media. Ah, but of course. I think it would have been better because it would have been less divisive. Instead, this is being used as like a, as a hammer to knock people on the head who... Because our politics is very particularly stupid at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, you have this sort of thing. But even worse, once it gets translated in, 
uh, from the sort of science people and the teacher people and the concerned citizens and the activists to politicians. Yeah. You have excitable people grabbing headlines by talking about how we only have 12 years left of human existence before yeah. everything begins to fall I apart. I mean, what's the line? I'm so jealous of people who, who were born 100 years earlier because at least they had a future. They, they could dream. <laughs> I, as a child, I can have no dreams yes. about what I'm going to do when I'm 30 because there'll be no 30. People, people saying things like... Uh, oh, Life expectancy, by the way, is higher now than it's ever been in the world. Anyway, go, go, yeah. there, there was recently a series of articles published by the uh, you know New York Times and all its kind of co... Uh, elite media institutions in the US talk about how asthma pumps were a great threat to sort of humanity and they were creating all these negative problems that yeah. uh, that and it's kind of you get to a point where it's like really asthma pumps Is asthma pumps like affecting the ozone uh, yeah, yeah and the ozone and climate change yeah you know and you're like because of the yeah, dude, people need asthma like pumps that. it's like uh, you want those guys to just die asphyxiate sorry tough luck yeah, yeah no, I mean sometimes dude Louis CK I've got to say has got a great joke <laughs> About he's like, he's got this riff that's about. Uh, but maybe. But maybe, yeah. Yes. <laughs> now actually, people on Twitter were referencing that exactly. Okay, <laughs> and and his, I mean, his worst one is he's like. Well, well, what is the riff? Let's just explain. Yeah, how this. does the riff go? He's like, no, 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 no. Some things make you go, no, 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 no. But maybe. <laughs> but no, 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 no. no. <laughs> so the worst one is, you know. Just letting children who are allergic to peanuts die. Like that is definitely the wrong thing to do. That is a no, 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 no. But maybe <laughs> if a peanut is going to wipe you out, you're not really in it to win it in the first place. No, 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 no. I'm not saying. I, I want this to be clear. No one at the Institute of Race Relations is saying that kids with peanut allergies should just be left to their own devices. You know, this is, weird. This is a magical thing we're doing here. It's like career suicide on <laughs> yeah. live. live. Live on a Friday afternoon. Okay, but so, yeah, yeah. For asthma, you know, this, this thing of like, no, we shouldn't let asthma people die, but maybe we should because, you know. Yeah, because the climate change and all that, and we're going to all be dead in 12 years anyway if we don't. Yeah, it's just a, it's a joke. It would be great if it was a joke. It's not great as public policy. Yeah, it's not great when it's being, when very serious people who yeah. sit around looking yeah. serious while they read the New York Times go, hmm, maybe, maybe. we should. You know, yeah. Maybe the asthma people are the problem. Yeah, yeah. you put, 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 put Louis C.K.'s thing about the peanut in a New York Times article and, you know, have people read that seriously. I mean, yes. Uh, and I think you'd get a, a flavor of, of what part of the problem is with the way that the debate is constructed. So, well, you know, look, look, we're, we're, I think we're beginning to wallow I, a bit now. So. No, no, no. I want to <laughs> say, no. Okay, so I want to drive home my third point. Yes. So first, first point is let's be respectful to uh, climate skeptics who, respectful in the sense like, like, dude, okay, do better. Find more data. Convince me. Um, and let's be skeptical about... Um, publications of 11,000 scientists that are experts in this field and that being a basis of uh, appealing to authority. Most climate scientists, by far the majority of climate scientists, agree that the emission of, of carbon uh, by human beings is responsible for what's happening. But don't, don't overdo it. Don't exaggerate. Okay, the third point is this. It's a point that... You can look it up and down, and, and if, if, you're, if you're listening to this and you find someone else who's making this point, please link it uh, in, in the comment section because I would like to look into this and because of my journalism work at the Institute, I don't get much time to do that. But my theory is that 
there is no one in the world, no serious person in the world has any doubt that if we want to control the climate, we can. So the solar flare guys and the mainstream guys, they all agree that if you launch a few satellites into the uh, above the sort of domestic first blanket layer of the atmosphere and you blow up uh, large amounts of ash, basically, and you can you can find the best chemical composite well, for that to, ash. You don't have to have such a complicated thing. Just have a nuclear war. No, I'm saying without hurting <laughs> anyone. You go blow it up. Or you drop in, the nukes in Siberia. In near, in near out of space. And, you know, it would be much cheaper than any of the other solutions for bringing down global temperatures. You go blow those things up and you create a bit of a dust cloud around the world. Not so much that you black out the sun, but enough that you reduce global temperature by a few degrees. No one doubts that we can do that. No one doubts that it's affordable. Why does no one talk about it? Why does no one who thinks this is the biggest issue in the world and we should decommission uh, uh, major uh, industries in the first world and basically tell Africa and India to shut up and stay at your level of income and not grow because you don't deserve it? You know, these people who are willing to say these, these make these really radical things, like you, everyone must become a vegetarian, no one must no fly one around must the world, children. no one must have children. Yeah. People who are prepared to say that, they're going so far. Why does no one say, guys, let's just launch a few satellites, uh, load it up with the right kind of ash, blow them up in, in, in sort of near outer space. That stuff will quickly dissipate, evenly spread around, uh, especially if, we've, you know, if you've got multiple satellites. You'd, you'd want it to be mm. fairly even, and I, we'll bring down global te temperatures. I've I'll heard, tell you. I've heard of related technologies yeah, that, yeah. that suck carbon out of the atmosphere that someone's trying to develop. That no, but that's very expensive, and that's in prototype phase. That's the kind of thing yeah, that we sure, don't sure, know sure. can work. Okay. I'm saying what we know can work. But why but don't everyone? They? Because of the fundamental rule that Herodotus told us when he first wrote history down. There ain't but nothing in this world that we figured out that doesn't produce winners and losers. <laughs> South Africa's political system is so cuck, forgive my French, that we have had negative growth. We're in a negative business cycle for, for, for 55 months or whatever it is. We've got 55% youth unemployment. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible state yeah. we're in this country. I think it's even higher, actually. At the end. But does that mean no one's winning? No. There are people winning out of this system. They're doing very well. Look at the, look at the EFF, for example. People mm. whose, whose lifestyles are, are doing fabulously out of a terribly corrupt system. Mm. There's always winners and losers. Whatever you do, it creates winners and losers. Someone's winning out of global warming. Mm. And I'm not talking about oil producers. Mm. They... On the causal side of adding to global warming, yes, there's winners. I'm talking about on the fighting output side. side. Yes. No, no, no. I'm also the fighting it side for sure. So, okay, exactly. So who are the people? Who are the people that are winning it on the outcome side? They are the activists who, as long as this problem sticks around, Russia. get to have a problem. And the other guys that are winning are Russia and Canada. Canada. Mm. The world. I've read NASA um, data and data. Uh, analyses that say that the world is greener now than it was a few decades ago and that it's getting greener and greener still. That's despite the Amazon sort of retreating and so on. Mm. And that's because of the increase of time and extent of forests 
mm. across the northern strip of the world, where the greatest landmass sort of going latitudinally think, is, I mean, a, is... Also give humans some credit here. There is a serious effort in a very lot of countries trees. to plant trees. Yeah, so there's this awesome thing. Also, you guys should check it out. Um, there's a there's a thing to plant 20 million trees. A bunch of famous YouTubers have tapped oh, into yeah, this yeah, that, in the yes. States. You should check that out. It's like a for every dollar you donate, they'll go plant a tree. It's mm. sweet. It's good. I like trees. Mm. But a lot of it is just, you know... As temperatures get a little bit warmer, there's, there's more place for trees to grow. There's more place for trees to grow and more time for them to grow in wintry places. Less time that they totally snow down. Hibernating, yeah. So, even putting that, and so there's also more farming room, you know, and a place like Russia and a place like China, the extent is so far and the kind of margins you're sitting on, like if you just push up by one degree the, the, the part of the sort of savannah, in Siberia, Siberia is not all permafrost. Eh? Mm, Most no, of it's no. a lot like. Well, uh, it's a very big place. It's a very big place. <laughs> you plant a lot of food there. If you push that up by one degree on the on the globe, mm. you it's, it's a huge amount of money that pours in mm. because you've got extra farming room. If you start bringing down the temperatures, all of these things that you've seen in the last couple of months. Okay, you have a hot summer in Europe. We want to blame. You know some amorphous human race you know we blame the human race for making it so hot if you bring the temperature down people are going to start blaming whoever launched those satellites mm. up because we'll know exactly the names of the people who, who did, it. did it and if someone dies in the perma someone slips in the cold and they die and you're like well if this had been a slightly warmer world they wouldn't have died or some farm goes out of business or some forest retreats and gets you know snowed in and they can't survive and so on those kinds of effects are going to start making people angry with each other in more focused ways. What we have right now is a very amorphous idea of responsibility. Who's responsible for the problem? We. What kind of we? Oh, some general we. If we really start taking responsibility for this, which means doing things about it that aren't just uh, on the input side, mm. then we're going to have to deal with the thing that happens when people take responsibility, in other words, take action, is that other people hold you responsible mm. for the thing that you've done. And I don't think that the world is serious about climate change before people start talking about the cost-benefit analysis of doing that. Mm. Because as long as we're not talking about that cost-benefit analysis, we're not talking about international relations, we're not talking about state-on-state -state relations, and states are still by far and away the most powerful concentrations, the, mo the greatest concentrations of power on earth. Exactly. As big and important as corporates are, states are much more important. Mm. And states aren't really relating to each other on this issue yet. They're all still sort of half, they're just umming and aahing, and like most everyone else pretending that they're too busy to really take the thing seriously. I hope that we do take it seriously sooner rather than later, but I also hope that we are cautious and note that the cost-benefit analysis might not necessarily come out in favor of some grand intervention. It might be better for us to well, there's a, there's muddle a along. I'm not sure, but, we sh but I do think that that in, a f in I don't know if it's in the next year or in the next 10 years, but I expect that that will become an important point of mm. debate. Uh, there is actually a whole school of the sort of people who dabble in policy and stuff around us who think that adaptation is a better approach to a lot of these things than stopping the inputs that you just actually try and deal with the negatives. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, which, which is not often talked about because the political incentives to embrace those ideas are not nearly as good as... 
Well, partly the political incentives are not so good because people don't talk about it. Because the media is letting the world down by just pushing the eleven thousand scientists say yeah, this is a thing. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're like the inputs are great because you know you can tax carbon, you can you know ban those nasty things that you don't like. You can do a lot of really cool stuff on the input side. On the output side, though, if it's like you know building houses in a particular way of things, it gets a little bit more difficult to. To, to sort of gain that. There is some fat to be scraped there, yeah. but it's really not as much. Well, we'll, we'll I'm, I, I'd like more evidence for that myself. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, at the moment, that's definitely the case, though, because we haven't developed a lot of the things, I think, that we would need to adapt to but a I think changed it's, world. I think it's because we're so unserious about it. I really think we're unserious about it. I think when you're not talking about the, the, those who benefit on the output side from a warmer world, then you're not serious. I think, likewise, the most... The, the, the only silver bullet option that's on the table is ITER, which is Latin for the way, which is the nuclear fusion project based in France. It's the largest international scientific corporate activity basically since the International Space Station. And in fact, it's got more international actors, more kind of, um, by some measures, more endurance. Um, and ITER has been radically underfunded. The point of ITER is that nuclear fission that is the splitting of very large atoms, is how nuclear reactors work. Yeah, the and ones nuclear bombs. And nuclear bombs. And to put it in a kind of rough way, you can think like you're turning mass directly into energy following the E equals MC squared equation, which means you take a little bit of mass and you get a lot of energy. Mm. But if you take the total mass of uranium that you're turning into energy, mm. let's say it's like 1%. So it's like a hundredth of the mass becomes energy. So it's just a little bit, but that's a, it's the most efficient way to go about things. When you do fusion, let's say it's an order of magnitude more effective. Let's say you're yes. turning 10% well, of the mass. Well, how the sun energy. works. Yeah. It's much more, it's, it's, it's a much greater energy conversion rate. It's the most effective energy conversion rate. Pretty much. Except for, uh, I think... Like outside of antimatter touching yeah, matter. exactly. That, that just so nominologically is possible. It's a pretty cool thing. So we could build a sun on the earth, a little small sun, quite a manageable sun. It turns out that it's probably much easier to manage. The byproducts are not uh, uh, radioactive. The byproducts mm. are quite benign, small elements uh, uh, that are, you Helium know. or something. Yeah, well, various things, but they're, they're quite benign. So why has it received so little funding? Why has it been so protracted? Because it's why just too has good it got so little attention? So I'm not saying it's going to work. We've already done. We've already performed fusion. It just takes more energy to get it going than you get out of it. Mm. So the thing to reach is the point of ignition, which is where you're sort of putting in as much energy as you get out, and then from there you start winning. Yes. You, do, you get a sustainable process where it's producing more energy than it's we getting. We may even get tired of winning. We may get tired <laughs> of winning, but we people don't talk about it. I dude, I've got a friend. Um, that I've been t that I've been engaging with about climate science for years. I've been telling him about ITER every year for since 2013 mm. when I first came across it, or 2012 in a New Yorker article. That's still my favorite New Yorker article. And he literally, the last time we spoke about it, he was like, "Oh, I forgot about ITER. Yeah, it's that cold fusion thing." No, not cold fusion. Now, cold fusion <laughs> is like, like mystical science. That is no. mystical science. That's basically an idea that's that we've able has to do only fusion been, at room temperature. Yeah, <laughs> that's been promulgated by the kinds of like very nasty activists that don't really want to solve the problem. Mm. So they kind of uh, attach this stupid idea, this like worse than homeopathy idea, to. Uh, fusion as a way to degrade it. 
Mm. And this is, I mean, this is a serious guy. This is a, you know, he's a scientist himself in, in some ways, a computer scientist. <laughs> anyway, so, so I think, but, and, but the reason is because he hasn't seen ITA being written about once in a South African publication. Mm. He hasn't seen ITA being written about once in the New York Times this year. And he takes those things to be very authoritative. And so he just doesn't, so he's like, he might as well think of it as cold fusion because yeah. it's outside of his Overton window. Yeah. And I think for, for most people, it would be outside of my Overton window too if it wasn't for the fact that I went to this fabulous institution that, that kind of laid these ideas in front of me. It's just the nature of people that we have jobs and then when we're not at work, and that's specific, and then when we're not at work, we don't often we don't have that much energy to go seeking out information we we have a diet people speak of a media diet because you kind yeah, of take yeah. in what's put in front of you exactly and, and so there's a responsibility in the media to take these things seriously and to put them on the plates of people to say look here's ita what do you think about it look here's a respectful analysis of the solar well, flare theory. The, what do you think the about big, it? the big media institutions all have already said that they're going to cover climate change and put it into people's plates and you know have it as a, a thing that people need to consume they're going to make editorial decisions that put climate change at the center of everything a whole bunch of media organizations they have but they're not but they're not putting information in front of us they're putting uh, they're putting they're propagandizing the issue yeah. sorry that's my phone ringing <laughs> as if to say that the, the the great the New York Times is calling to say that we're in very big trouble for saying nasty things about them. They're a fabulous paper. They do very good work. But you've got to be and 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 there are some climate science journalists out there that are actually doing a fabulous job of drawing attention to just these kinds of things. It's not that it's uh, it's not like there aren't that there isn't no, good there work being done. But more much so much more work needs to be done before we get to the stage that politicians start feeling the pressure from that they their, need to actually take action from their yeah, body yeah. politics. So, you know, you've got you've got if you're a politician and the only people that ever call you up about climate science are radicalized socialists who are calling you up to say <laughs> the government needs to we take need over to everything and now. dismantle capitalism so mm. that we don't cause the extinction of the human race. Yeah. Then you're probably not going to want to put that much time into putting forward a serious solution if you're something like a reasonable politician if you're a social if you're a hardcore socialist then this who is really great. wants to, then this is gravy for you and you're going to ignore pragmatic solutions and pragmatic thinking and use this as a we can, kind of stick yeah, to bash can, the heads of value add gdp type people we can we can liberate the proletariat and smash capitalism and save the planet it's a win 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 so you know really it's up to this is we're at a, we are still it's bizarre because I feel like the conversation hasn't moved in the last decade. We're still in this place where we can't really go forward until journalists, this very strange breed um, of human beings... Oh, this is your realm of things, uh, I'm afraid. Start getting their act. <laughs> we need to get our acts together. Well, um, That's what I, I feel. I would, I would like to move on for this yeah, topic, let's but I will, I will conclude by saying that I think instead of buying, uh, saying buy gold, yeah. we should say buy fusion stocks. Buy fusion. <laughs> buy ITER. Yes, buy ITER. I think it could work. And I'm happy, you know, I'd love to I'd love to have a debate with someone who thinks it couldn't work. But you know, you, you can't start that with cold fusion. I don't know, this is left for the for the people with the physics wizardry, I think. I think I, this is beyond my, my pay grade. Um so I, w I did want to have a, a long whinge about how the left right spectrum as it's used in political writing is a bit rubbish. Yeah. Uh not for the reasons that it's inherently rubbish, but just that the, the scales oh, are a little bit incorrectly right. calibra yeah. calibrated. What does left but, mean? Uh, but what I does right mean? <laughs> but I don't know if we have enough time for that uh, because, well. We've gone on so long about. Yeah, we've gone on so long about. No, the, but isn't the it quite hopes. simple? 
Oh yeah, it's very simple, which is that we have this very weird uh, way of looking at left-right in that the National Socialist German Workers' Party is on the opposite side to the Workers' Party of whatever country you, you, you happen to live in. Um, right, sorry. So, so, the, words, so that's the Nazis. The, the Soviets and the Nazis are on opposite sides, even though they're both totalitarian authoritarian regimes which believed in expanding themselves militarily and, you know, had these sort of totalistic visions of the world and sort of prophesized end and believed in the collective over the individual. Yeah. They had all these similarities... Yeah. Some differences, of course. Well, they, and they also had a big thing for forced labor, slaves, oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, basically killing people and, and in yeah, millions. Killing, killing people who didn't fit into the plan, right? Yeah. Um, and people say, oh, well, they, they have this idea of, okay, well, there isn't a left-right spectrum, but there's a horseshoe theory that when you get to the extremes. Yeah, that's what I was taught when I was a kid. But no, not really, because we have many uh, allies of the Institute, I think, who are, or one might describe themselves as anarcho-capitalists. Now, they are very radical people. Yeah, they're far right. I mean... And, yeah, they don't have... It's nice to talk... It's nice to debate with them. Exactly. They're, they're, and it's nice to work with they're them. Sort of, they're, they're, they're interesting. But they're, but they're wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but to say that, you know, they somehow, because they're extremists, fit on this horseshoe, where do they fit? Yeah, no idea. I, yeah, I don't see how an anarcho-capitalist is right... Or left next to someone who it wants to the state to control everything. It, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. So, I have a very simple solution. Yeah, which is that we mean when we say left, we mean collectivist. We mean the state having a large role. We mean that uh, the the individual is subordinate to group interests. Yeah. And when we say right, we mean the completely atomized individual who has no obligations to anyone else yeah. and is completely free from interference. Yeah. And that you can pretty much put almost everyone on some sort of scale there. So, yeah. for example, social conservatives are left on social issues, but maybe a little bit right on economic issues. Yeah. Um, and then it, it's so neat. It's clean. It makes sense. It's really neat. So on the far right, you've got Ayn Rand. Yes. Who, th who really thinks like the family is a bunch of nonsense and it's just me, my, I and myself yeah. and everyone else get out of my way. Otherwise, I'm going to push you out. And on the far left, you've got Hitler and Stalin. Yeah. Um, and in between, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a vast and great scale. And one of the things that you notice is that socialists all are going to fall on the left. Yes. So the National Party of South Africa, left wing. Yes. What was their idea? Big state intervention, make the state work to enhance, to make life nice for a few white people. And it's, it's, it's interesting to, when you look at the sort of intellectual history of Nazis, the, a lot of these movements. Mus right? Mussolini. Mussolini's fascists. Uh, the Nazi Party, they they don't just arrive at similar conclusions to sort of the Soviets or, or the left in a, in a uh, you know just in by an chance. accidental yeah, way. They, yeah. they come out of very similar kind of intellectual uh, circles, pools, pools yeah. and circles. Now, I think the, the the thing is, people say, "Oh well, you know, Nazis don't follow Marx." Yes, but Marx isn't the only socialist. Yeah. The, the Nazis, the fascists, they're all different types of what you could call non-Marxist socialists. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I encourage, I'm sure many of our esteemed readers have probably come across this at least once before, but if you look at what the Nazis uh, propagated themselves to the population as, um, so in the early years as they were beginning to take off, uh, right. Hitler and some of his allies wrote this 25 points oh, that they wanted dude. enacted. That 25 points is everyone should read that. Oh my word! And it's it's it if you know it's got 
you know, we must exclude Jews from being citizens. It's sort of the deep anti-Semitism of the Nazi party. Um, it's got, we must focus on the German folk. So you're like, oh, okay, this is all what we'd expect from a Nazi manifesto. But then it says, we have to end war profiteering, the exploitation of children, and we must expropriate land without compensation. From the Junkers. From, from, from the Junkers, from everyone uh, who, who stands in the way of the public good. Yeah. And some of those sections really sound a lot like the EFF manifesto. Dude, you sh- I read those two things together because I was reading, <laughs> when the EFF came out, I was reading Willem Scherer's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's the first real history of the, of the Third Reich. Yes. Uh, and, and, oh, my word. Uh, 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 I just read the EFF manifesto and mm. then I read that and I was like, this is shockingly similar. And it's not just them, of course, because the ANC has similar uh, similarities. In and it's because, so, the, so the, the one social cleavage, w- one cleavage on the left is that on the left you think, okay, the government needs to interfere. It needs to take from the rich to give to us. And then the question is, what defines us? Yes. So us could be defined by just the, citizenship. The it could be defined by nation. race. It could be defined as everyone. Trotsky versus it Stalin, could, for example, the major exactly, cleavage yeah. was do we want... Uh, the Soviet, do we want communism around the world or do we want communism that's sort of built around nation states, a globalist communism or a state-based communism? And so, yeah, and then you can have a state-based communism as the USSR had, which is sort of at least putatively non-racial, or you can have a state-based communism or socialism that is race-based. And and that's obviously what the Nazis had going. I think that Steven Pinker, by the way, Steven Pinker is really one of the best people to read on on climate change. I think he's quite reasonable. I think he's really, uh, uh, he's collegial. He's someone who really is identified as being a little bit as centrist or left, um, but he's critical of of left-wing activists who, who are, blowing smoke in front of our faces when it comes to this issue and all, uh, all other kinds of issues. But he coined the phrase, the left pole. Well, I think he coined the phrase. He maybe just <laughs> uses it. Yeah, yeah. The left pole, he describes as being a position in the political arena that people stand on. And from that position, everything else is right wing. Yes. He says it's much like the North Pole. When you're standing on the North Pole, everything, everything is, is south. Everything is south, yes. This is really a poor way to orient yourself. You can't give good no, directions it, it, from the it North results, Pole. <laughs> it results in endless nonsense in the media space. So, for example, people often in the media space accuse the IRR of being right-wing. Yeah. Now, by their definition, they basically just mean it's another word for racist. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of argue these points as like saying, okay, but you know, here we are in favor of things like gay rights and things that are generally considered left-wing in our current way yeah. of looking at it. And that doesn't sort of seem to gel. It's kind of like, oh. It doesn't touch sides. Because, and it doesn't need to touch sides because the point is about, I always come back to loyalty teams. The point of the less poll is it's defined by yes. us. It's defined by this is where we are. Everything else is right. There's no content to what right wing is other than exactly. it's not us. So it's for people who define themselves as part of the left tribe to make moral claims about, you know, you. Yeah. When they say you're right wing, what they mean is you're bad. Yeah. And it's so stupid. It doesn't tell you anything about, you know, um, when I read in the international press, Brazil has elected a right wing president. I don't know what that means. Does that mean he's a Mussolini-style national fascist who's yeah. going to... Could be. Or does it mean there is, he's a sort of free marketeer, Milton Friedman disciple? Could be. Doesn't tell me anything. Same as with the left-wing government, you know? Yeah. Does it mean it's a sort of soft, lovey-dovey, Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, everyone must receive hugs? 
or is it? <laughs> and, and social uh, fix yeah. safety net. Yeah, uh, uh, hugs hugs climate change and social the net. And or yeah. does it mean that they've elected Stalin? And <laughs> and yeah. So and it's not just a matter of degree. I mean, it's it's about like because if you look at the Canadian political system, it's really rule of law bound. Mm. And what the rule of law does is it constrains the power of the state to do just about yes, anything yes, that it'd like to do. So there's various things that you know. Uh, and Trudeau, I'm not a particular fan of him, but he's he, he and his administration were quite uh, quite good at maintaining just that rule of law that constrains the power of the state. And yet they fully except identified the, it. Except for that corruption scandal we had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I don't want to get into that. But they, they you know, generally speaking... The, I, I I don't want to be sitting on some right poll either. I'm not interested in either of these polls. There's, yeah, th- no, there's and various, of course people very respectable positions on the left, and there's very crazy positions uh, the, on the left. What you might and you just can't tell the difference when the mean, when the words have no meaning other than not us. What you might call the right poll is exactly the same thing with the left. I mean, I do this sometimes. I you know I talk about crazy lefties and that kind of thing, and it is a lazy shorthand. It's lazy, yeah. um, and it, especially in writing, it's actually just terrible. Yeah, no, so in writing, it's not on. Hey? Yeah. I think j- jokes among friends now and then we can joke about the lefties and the righties and the yeah, yeah, uppies exactly. and the downies, but uh, sometimes you got to be serious. And I s- and and so I this is I don't know if anyone besides you who listens to this podcast writes for a living, but I will right. <laughs> but I will say if you are writing, please make the think about when you use the terms left and right wing what exactly you mean. Yeah. Because and we're all readers. Like, think about like what what are people saying when they say that? Other than us, us, us yeah, exactly. Us. Um, so that would I think make a lot of improvements to the way that we uh, sort of construct uh, the way that uh, we will be able to differentiate a little bit better between ideology and tribe. Yeah, if we if we readjust the scale to what I meant. Bloody well put. <laughs> hey, sometimes we actually come up with good things in this podcast. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Uh, just for our last couple of minutes, because we're almost coming to an hour now, I think. Um, U.S. elections, interesting little um, change in Iowa. So uh, just for those of you who are not perhaps aware, the American presidential primary where the party chooses its candidate, it always starts in the state of Iowa first, and then it goes to New Hampshire as the second one. So those two states are incredibly important because momentum is a very real thing. And if you win the first two, well, let's put it this way. No candidate has ever lost the first two and gone on to become the nominee of their party. So it's very important to win. Uh, uh, There might be one exception or something, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. So it's very important to either win New Hampshire or Iowa or both. Now, Pete Buttigieg, who... You know, it seems to be, especially now as the race goes on, a little bit more moderating on some of his positions. Yeah. Um, He's the mayor from uh, South South Bend. Bend. I think he Uh, also started as the most moderate. Yeah. Well, I started as one of the more moderate. More moderate, more moderate. He's kind of moved around a little bit as the campaign's gone on, but... He has, that's... Um, He is not doing great in national polling. He's kind of like on 5% or something. Doesn't have much name-bearing recognition. He's young. He comes from a small town. But... Yeah. In Iowa, he's currently in second, according to some polls. Which is huge. I mean, he's been, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, I think the, the one of the recent polls had Elizabeth Warren, the sort of radical, on 20, uh, 20%. That's radical left yes. in the sense that she wants the government to get way bigger than it is. And control people. It's a simple, lives. it's not a slur term. It's not a amorphous thing. That's what she wants. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she's on 20%. Buttigieg is on 19 Bernie Sanders is on 17. Somehow, apparently, people don't care that he's like on the 
you know, having heart attacks. So his doctor said to him, <laughs> you had a heart attack. What you really need to do is stay away from stressful situations. <laughs> Bernie said, the 1% are making everything stressful. Give me the nuclear codes now, right now. <laughs> That'll calm me down. We all need to calm down. If I have the nuclear codes, I'll be way more calm. No stress. Yeah, if we, if we eliminate the billionaire class, then everyone will be less stressed. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a thought. <laughs> and uh, Joe Biden, who's still ahead in I the I still love polls. you, Bernie. I've always loved you. Oh, come I'm on, let's not have this again. <laughs> <laughs> I, was a, I was a Bernie boy when I was a teenager. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so so uh, Joe Biden, who's in the lead nationally, is currently in fourth place in that poll in Iowa, which is a terrible sign yeah. because yeah. you know people often back the strong horse. This is a, a sort of bin Laden quote, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and if yeah. you look like the weak horse by yeah. being ahead in the national poll but suddenly coming fourth in the first real contest, yeah, yeah a lot of people are going to say, mm, "Loser! Now, what a waste! What a loser! Why should we support this guy?" So there's a theory now developing of the Democratic race um, that some people have been talking about for a while. That what happens is uh, Buttigieg comes in second or first in Iowa. His name recognition is boosted massively by this, and he suddenly becomes the moderate candidate to counter Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, uh, Presumably because Warren has consistently been beating Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders' support folds into Elizabeth Warren. So you have a two-person race where yeah. uh, Buttigieg... It's like the historically Biden-Buttigieg guys yeah. are all under Buttigieg and the historically Warren-Sanders no. guys are all under Exactly. Warren. So then you go into a contest between the two and ultimately Buttigieg because there are, according to polling, more moderates in the Democratic Party than radicals yeah. um, fall behind... Just not on Twitter. Buttigieg. Just not on Twitter. That's yeah. a very big difference. Yeah. There is one flaw in this plan, though. Yeah. Now, this well, is, it's this not is, a plan, but it's well, a roadmap this, for this roadmap. Buttigieg becoming the Democratic candidate to take on Trump. And that is that Buttigieg, of all of the candidates, has, I believe, one of the lowest percentages of his supporters from black voters, yeah. which are very important in the Democratic uh, electorate. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about Biden is almost entirely his support is being propped up at high levels by the black vote. Yep. And tell us why, Nick. Well... I don't know why exactly, speculate. but we can speculate that it's because in a in a in a in a reversal of twenty years ago, the black part of the Democratic Party is the least radical. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about Twitter. We're not talking about Twitter. Yeah. But um, in polling, they found that the sort of the views of of um, of most black Democratic most black identifying uh, potential voters, yeah, um, is that they in fact um, have much more moderate views on social issues, especially. Um, for example, homosexuality is not as accepted amongst the black electorate. Yeah. Now, this is a little bit of a problem for Pete Buttigieg. Because he's going to be the first gay president if he makes it. Yes. Yeah. And also, you know, he, he has not much black support in his hometown. He had a falling out with some of the black activists in his community because there was a policeman who shot an unarmed black man in his town and there was conflict over this. That was recent. And before that, he'd fired a black policeman who had... Was police chief. Police believe, chief yeah. who was spying on his own superiors. And he was yeah. like, well, you can't do that. That's against the rules. So uh, the, the, the problem with that theory is that Buttigieg actually doesn't pick up Biden's support. Biden's support either disperses amongst the candidates or finds or some away. new cha or, yeah. champion or something like that. Yeah. Um, Bloomberg. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Um, so that's that's still quite interesting. Maybe I, think I just want to add something to yeah. that because I... Buttigieg was my sweetheart 
uh, when the Democratic primary first began. I thought that he looked to me like the best candidate for to win the Democratic primary, right from before he even announced. Um, and one of my old Princeton buddies works for CNN and is the guy following the Buttigieg trail. So I've been getting a lot of things, uh, not on a private way, but just, you know, public things. I've been following it kind of even more closely than I suppose I otherwise would have for that reason. This is just full disclosure. Uh, maybe it's a bit of, you know, bias. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, because my buddy's kind of pointing a camera at him, I think he's nice. No, but uh, the, th the serious reason that I really like Buttigieg is that, is the way that he spoke to Trump supporters. Yes. Respectfully. Yes. Is the way that he wanted to get on Fox News. Yeah, he's, respectfully. Taken, a, he's taken a very different tone. Elizabeth Warren has basically said... Uh, shame, 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 shame. Yeah, exactly. Uh, someone asked her a question about, you know, uh, what about someone who, for religious reasons, is not particularly keen on gay marriage, but, you know, they're kind of a sort of moderate, what would you say to convince them? And say to them that you're not going to, like, attack their religion, mm. even if you believe in, you know, gay marriage and gay yeah. rights. Or something. Yeah. And she said, well... And I assume it's a man who would ask a question like that, who probably can't get a girlfriend. I mean, this was literally in her reply. I tell them to get up and move on with the times. Now, you know... Yeah, rule, it's rule, funny, man. It's rule, funny. Rule but number it's one not, of politics like, yeah. is that... And this wasn't an off-the-cuff thing. It, it seems yeah. like it was actually a prepared answer. Yeah. Um, you know, rule number one of politics, as many Romney and Clinton have discovered themselves is don't attack the voters even the people who aren't necessarily going to vote for you unless yeah. you're absolutely because you're sure. aiming to be their leader yeah. so on some things you can but you need yeah as because you say you need to be sure you're going to numb uh, you know there are a lot of people who are going to hear that and they never would have voted for you in the first place but maybe they would have stayed away and they're yeah. going to hear that and they're going to be like wow this wow. lady's a problem well yeah i want to keep you out because she and hates then, us and then if she wins then it's like wow well now we have to pick it and you know you yeah, know we have to block everything she does, she and does treat which her is like, like antichrist holds american politics back so badly yes. i would love to see a campaign in which the best of donald trump is brought out in the final debate <laughs> he like everyone he's got his worst side and he's got a better side yeah I, he does he and does man and he, and i thought that Buttigieg would bring out the smart side of donald trump and donald trump would uh, try and lower the iq of the of the debate I but think Buttigieg would do a good job of and then and then trump would have to say Okay, you know, we we cut taxes. We've got high uh, growth in employment. We've got some increase in in incomes for the lower uh, income earners. Now, what are we going to do next? Are we going to start looking at pushing up the minimum wage or not? And like that's the kind of question that Trump would be forced to answer on the back of data and of some analysis, because otherwise he'd just be made to look foolish and stupid. Because Buttigieg is patient, Buttigieg is passionate, and Buttigieg is really informed and smart cool, calm and collected kind of guy. Yeah. So I thought he'd do the best. Unfortunately, I think his his real trouble is that alienation of, of a, a section of the black electorate. And the strategy that he seems to have employed, I think under bad advice, is Good that he should Get pursue... nice and woke on the race issue. Yeah. So it's like pump up, and it's just not the way to go about it. I think that... Um, Biden didn't have support amongst a lot of black voters because he was super woke. Biden was the least woke of all of the Democratic candidates. But he has... He's, Some he's, of it's the... He's Barack Obama's vice president. Yeah, but dude, look at how unwoke Barack Obama was. Barack Obama did not say, vote for me because I'm going to be the first black candidate. Mm. That's what Hillary Clinton did. Yes. Hillary Clinton was like, vote for me because I'm going to be the first woman. Barack no. Obama did not do that mm. because he's, he's better than that. Mm. 
He wanted to appeal to people on the basis of his values, on the basis of his character. That was one the of the reasons of why, he, uh, why he crushed McCain, actually, was that message of, he said, you know, it was kind of both things. It's like if you wanted to vote for a black president because you wanted America to have a black president, that was kind of an implicit, uh, well, unspoken... Well, the media, yeah, the media the is going to do this. that. Let the media do that. But, but he, he himself, wasn't running on that. Yeah, he himself, and he kind of promised in a little bit of a way that America might be freed from its... The chains of, of, of its yeah, racial psychology. Yeah, exactly. The woke, the whole thing with wokeisters is that they is that they they live on that anxiety yeah, the chains and the tension, must be, and they be do, made tighter. We yeah, can never you, escape them. You, we can never escape the chains until we've until we've wrecked the economy. He was yeah. like, no, let's be smart. Let's get over ourselves. Let's go forward. Let's hold hands. Let's be together. Let's collaborate. And I think that Buttigieg, you know, there's with this issue, I think that he would um, do better if he maintained the the attractive thing about his character. Is that he's not a panderer? Yeah. Is that he's not a he clickbaiter? He has not he's made not a, a big issue out of his uh, sexual orientation. For example. Yeah. And just in the same way that he hasn't made an issue out of his own sexual orientation, I think that he shouldn't make an issue out of out of race revanchism, yeah. out of paying reparations to black people for slavery and so on. Yeah. Uh, I think that he should be the same pragmatist, the same intellectual that he is on everything else. Hmm. And I think that. Uh, people, if he does well in Iowa, black people, white people, Hispanic people, well, a lot of people are going to look at him and say, okay, here's, 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 a, here's someone that still has some things to prove, but that I'm, I'm willing to, you know. He's a plucky up-and-coming youngster. He's got a little bit of a... Put something behind him and, him, see, and see him see if he can go a step forward and see if he can... Because the, to conclude my side of the story, how you win really can be more important than that you win. Because you might, of course, lose as well. And how you lose can be more important than that you lose. Yeah, you can do I a lot of damage by winning or losing badly. Badly. I want to see a, a contest with Donald Trump. I want to see a contender coming out of the Democratic Party that's going to make whoever wins or whoever loses Better. for it to be done in the, in the kind of way that is going to reduce the hateful, nasty, left pole, right pole gridlock yeah. that's not just freezing their legislative process, but that's like kind of freezing the realm of ideas mm. because America's uh, mediascape is so dominant. It informs no, so I much of the rest of the world. It's really hard to think straight with these two magnetic poles, like kind of freaking the computer screen out and just turning it to black. I do agree. Yeah. At a time when America is in a pretty good position, this is uh, the sort of hatred and the vitriol is way beyond what, what should be expected of a time of yeah, peace, peace and prosperity. Peace and prosperity. Um, so there is one person who believes that he can unite the warring factions, which is former New York mayor and former Republican, but now Democrat, Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. Now, every single election cycle, Michael Bloomberg, who is a billionaire and has political ambitions, believes that he might be the president. There's always a little bit of kicking around the story about, oh, yeah. Michael Bloomberg should be president. Yeah. Oh, he's thinking about a campaign. So this, it's, it's this election cycle's turn for this, that he would register as a Democrat to... Yeah. To, to run in the primary yeah. it would be a late entrance um, there is on paper there are some things to recommend him he, firstly he has governance experience in that uh, um, he ran New York he was mayor which is the same as running a small country actually because it's got an enormous budget and it's got Dude, millions of people it's not that small a country <laughs> yeah I mean it's what what's the population of New York uh, it's, it's several million 12 million 10 million yeah. 11 million it's a much bigger job it's like 
it's like running Zimbabwe with 10 times, 20 times the money. Oh my God. Like a yeah. hundred times. hundred times the money. Right. So it's a, it's a big a deal. Thousand, yeah, yeah. It's a big deal. It's like running a medium sized European country. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's good. Uh, he's left on some issues. He's right on some issues. He tends to be a little bit more free market in some cases, but on yeah. some sort of He's quite free issues. market, but he's also like banning... Big gulp drinks, uh, oh, which I'm a fan of. You're not a fan a of travesty. It's it the greatest injustice. But let me not. Let me. <laughs> um, he's also very anti-gun, so he appeals to some parts of the Democratic right. electorate there. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, he's very kind of New York. He's so New York. He's, yeah. he's the sort of middle of New York in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Rapacious capitalism mixed with le, uh, left-wing social. And ideas. he became mayor of New York after Giuliani, and so Giuliani had this halo around him because. He brought down the crime. Because he brought down crime and then he was the mayor when mm. New York suffered the 9-11 attacks. And there really was, I mean, what the, New York's place in American in the American mind is interesting, partly because America doesn't have one mind. But, uh, you know, there's something distinct about New York. It's a cosmopolitan city that in some ways, a lot of New Yorkers identify themselves as New Yorkers first yeah. and Americans second. And it is a huge cultural center yeah. and economic center. And so so sometimes, yeah. the, you know, there used to be a lot of, there's traditionally a lot of like, ah, those damn New Yorkers, they think they yeah, know yeah. better. They're so crude. They're so crass. They're so like rough and well, gruff. Well, like Donald and, Trump. And, uh, <laughs> and capitalist and venal. Um, but when 9-11 happened, it was like, no, dude, New York is ours. There's nothing mm. like it on the planet and we love it. Mm. And we, you know, the mightiest nation on the world is going to rally to do vengeance upon those it is who America's touched us greatest on, city. The, on, the, on in the world's greatest city. In the world's greatest city. So, according to some. <laughs> according maybe to me. According to half. I loved it. God damn it. I loved living there. But so uh, so after, so Giuliani had, the, had some halo effect around that. And then Bloomberg came after that and it was quite hard to, Imagine a New York mayor who would be more, who would somehow win the charms and, and affections of, of, of its citizens even more. And I think in some ways he really did because he was such a pragmatist and he's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. but there is a problem, which is that, so that we talked about the case room on paper there. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but there is a downside, which is because he's also a pragmatist and stuff, he doesn't necessarily belong to a tribe. Yeah. Uh, and as one person on Twitter said, it, I think it was the national review writer, Charles Cook said, uh, every single American has at least one issue in which they really, really are annoyed by Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. And there is some polling to suggest this. Yeah. So <laughs> Fox News poll asked Democratic uh, electorate people, if the f uh, the following person got into the Democratic uh, race, you would, and the options were definitely vote for or never vote for. Yeah. So most interestingly, yeah. Michelle Obama, 50% definitely vote for. Yeah. 8% never vote for of Democratic electorate votes. Interesting. Hillary Clinton, 27% definitely vote for. 30% never vote for. So divisive. <laughs> God. Michael Bloomberg. Never vote for. 32%. Definitely vote for. 6%. Huh. Yeah. So, so he he's has as negative as Hillary. But no positive. But almost no positive. Yeah. Uh, which is not a great... Now, of course, you can always turn that around in a campaign. Yeah. But it's not a great place to start from. So there's now some and speculation. He's old, yeah, he's also old. He's about as old as Biden and and Bernie and all these yeah. people. He's like 77 or something. Which is not a problem uh, well, outside of the fact that it... At least he hasn't had a heart attack. Yeah, he, he's healthier. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it'd be, I, an interesting old person is kind of the best because a lot of life experience and whatever. But, uh, but come on. Like but health, health is a worry. Another anyway. septuagenarian? I mean, really. This yeah. is the, supposed to be the young party. Oh, I don't know. Um, 
I'm happy for them to go against that grain. <laughs> I'm also happy for, you know, so it's interesting. I suppose Bloomberg and, and Buttigieg are on opposite ends of the age scale. Yes. Well, well now... But either would... Yeah, yeah. People are starting to say, well, if he's not going to really do anything, what is his point? Except he's going to presumably take some moderate support away from Biden and Buttigieg. Yeah. So is this... The triple Bs. Yeah, is this a... Middle uh, of the rotors. Between the A's and the C's. Between the AOC's. <laughs> is this a... <laughs> Sorry, that's very bad. No, that was good. <laughs> uh, is this some sort of weird ego trip? Is that very rich people sometimes do? Like, do you remember the Starbucks uh, CEO? Yeah, right? yeah. Remember how you were telling me about how this was like some sort of grand master plan? And now he's... He suspended his campaign, by the way. I know, but it, <laughs> dude, I told, yeah, yeah. After making no impact after the first week. Yeah, no, but it was. It's, 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 I would like to give a shout out to the political consultants who convinced him to make a fool of himself by running because they probably made a very yeah. large sum I reckon of money. those folks got paid. If they'd like to donate some money to the IRR, SMS 32823. We'll only say good things about you. We'll take a million dollars from you and we'll tell you that you too should run for president, yeah, yeah. whoever it is. We don't, we don't normally sell influence, but in this case we will. <laughs> 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 Good um, so you know what is he going to do is he going to take some support from Biden Buttigieg and ensure that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are the yeah. two that go to the finals Warren's going to have a tough road you know I just want to draw our listeners attention to the Economist's uh, latest issue that has her face on the cover with sort of three red lines of ticker tape America wants to uh, Warren's plan to change American capitalism Yeah, I think the Economist is in a difficult position it can never endorse Donald Trump uh, and so it has to basically endorse whatever a democratic candidate wins the primary and if that candidate is warren it's going to be difficult for you know i can imagine the economist a few like a month ago being like we can't say nasty things about warren because if she gets the candidacy then we're going to have to put our weight behind her and endorse her we can be critically endorse her but we'll have to endorse her and if we're endorsing her and people point out that like a year earlier we were saying that she's a terrible socialist, then they're going to say that we're hypocrites who just hate Trump. Well, they decided that they have to be critical of her anyway. So they've, so they've got the various pieces on, on why her plans really are threatening. Exist- they're basically existential threats. They're also impossible to implement. In the yeah. sense that the co- Congress right, so she will can't never be, vote for them, so she can't be serious. Yeah, yeah. So unless which she is, is counter, serious, which is counter to her whole shtick, shtick, which is I'm the serious nerd who's got all the plans. Yeah, and everyone, but we we wish we riffed about this yeah. last time. We did, so we did. It's been yeah. Let's not go too deep. I would like to just say that one of our colleagues is asking me on WhatsApp whether they can use the source that you have left in my office. Can I tell them yes? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> that's, a, oh, that's a spicy, it's a literally a spicy uh, peri-peri sauce that I got from a Mozambique beacon dealer. And just so you so know. So spicy hot <laughs> office politics creeping into two crickets. <laughs> and this is exactly, uh, the, the gives you a sense of what it's like to work at the IRR is that we have colleagues who leave bottles of sauces in each other's offices. Ah. You know, that's we're a, we're a friendly lot. Yeah, exactly. They say we're individualists, but really we like sharing to share. Sharing is caring. <laughs> we're a little bit communist. <laughs> Everyone's communist around the lunch table. Yeah. Like, I think we should go get some lunch and you can share my fries. Yes, no, that's a good idea. And actually, that's a good point, I think, to perhaps leave this podcast because okay. um, we are now at one hour, 20 minutes. Yeah. So if anyone is still listening, thank you very much. You have fortitude and endurance beyond anything I could possibly claim to possess. Yes, and, uh, and please, uh, yeah, let's keep the temperature down on uh, climate change debates. Let's yes. keep it cool. 
and uh, let's <laughs> keep the let's keep the let's enjoy the hot weather outside this weekend. It's looking like a winner, and it's well, been just such a fabulous week to see people running past the office in speedos, looking like the yeah, South African flag. It's been very charming. A lot of lot of parties last night. Melville was on fire. Um, with jazz music and people kind of singing Springbok anthems over it, which was Very kind good. of a weird thing to see. And it's just the charm. It's such a charm. It's nice to win. And I'm glad for that. And so I hope you've had a good week on that regard. I know it's I, maybe frustrating yeah. everyone celebrating it, but it is just a joy. And I want to throw my voice in with that too. I, I don't really like outside or hot weather. So yeah. Nicholas does not like the sun, it turns out. No, the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like that it's there, you know. It's like it's all that photosynthesis that happens because of it. That's cool. Yeah. But, you know, having to go outside into it is a little bit, that's not, not my vibe. I prefer to work at night, but we don't get everything we want. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy the, this podcast, uh, please share it with your friends. Share it on Facebook. Um, check us out on all the podcast apps. Uh, we're on iTunes, uh, Google Play, those ones. Um, also, if you like the work that the Institute of Race Relations does, you can SMS your name to 32823, and one of our agents from the call center will call you. SMSs cost one rand and terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening and have a lovely week or two.